Friday the 13th of December 1996. Wilmslow, Cheshire, England. A 35-year-old woman kissed her husband goodbye as he left the family home to go to work and then to go on to an office party that evening. The couple had just recently welcomed their first child into the world and everything had been going smoothly for them. However, within a matter of hours, the young family's lives would be plummeted into a living nightmare. And in an extremely controversial case of heartbreak, pain and suspicion, let's explore the case of Sally Clark. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this episode, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to Magellan TV for sponsoring this video. My regular viewers will know that Magellan TV has been a constant supporter of this channel and other true crime channels, and we really wouldn't be able to make the content that we do without their help. So don't hesitate to go show them some love and support and check out their extensive library of interesting documentaries, ranging from true crime, history, science, space, and even nature shows. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and their producers alongside talented curators to ensure that each and every documentary on their service is the most premium that you can find. I've just finished watching Cybercrimes with Ben Hammersley, which is a true crime series on Magellan TV that takes a look at how criminals are using different gadgets and the internet and different technologies to commit elaborate crimes. Ben Hammersley is a British technologist and futurist, and he takes us on a journey looking at different true stories of the world's most historical cybercrimes. So after you've jumped over and gotten a one month free trial and watched it, I'd love it if you could drop a comment on this video or send me a tweet or Instagram DM with your thoughts and opinions. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to bag yourself a one month free trial to Magellan TV, including all of their 4K documentaries at no extra cost. Now back to the case. A quick note before we delve in, a lot of the information used within this case was taken from a book that I've listed down in the sources, along with the appeal judgments and court opinions. We'll also be speaking with Dr. Saham Das, who is a consultant forensic psychologist who runs the channel A Psych for Sore Minds about aspects of this case too. This video is actually part one in a two-part series and you'll be able to find part two over on Dr. Saham's channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. It will be linked down below. I'll become very clear at the end of this video why we've split this case into two parts and why Saham will be talking about the remainder of the case. I don't want to give you any... any spoilers, but uh, let's, let's delve back into this case. In the 1950s, Frank Lockyer had a solid reputation as a constable in Salisbury, Wiltshire, England. He was a handsome man who had charm, courtesy, and consideration for others, and he was respected within his community. His father, though, had hoped he'd continue the family business and go into farming, 
but Frank had instead chosen to go to grammar school and into the Wiltshire Constabulary. And it was as Frank had been going about his policing business that he happened to have passed by a hairdresser's in a village just a stone's throw from Salisbury. He had glanced into the hairdresser's through the window, his eyes falling on the most beautiful woman that he'd ever seen, Jean Bundy. Frank, on a whim, decided to go into the hairdresser's, despite not actually needing a haircut, just so that he could speak to Jean. And this risk paid off. They hit it off right away. Before long, the pair had fallen in love with one another and they eventually got married on the 4th of April. And they ensured that they got married at the end of the tax year so that they could get a £250 rebate to pay for their honeymoon. A genius idea, if you ask me. By 1962, Frank had worked his way up through the ranks and had become an inspector, a subdivisional commander. The couple had wanted to start a family with one another, but despite their best efforts, they were having no luck conceiving naturally. After numerous visits to the doctor, Jean was told that she actually needed to undergo an operation, which might give the couple a chance to have children of their own. And thankfully for them, the operation was a success and Jean fell pregnant. On the 15th of August, 1964, the couple welcomed their firstborn child into the world, who they named Sally. By the time that Sally had been born, Frank had risen further up the ranks and had become the chief superintendent and commander of the Southwest Division of Wiltshire. Sally was described to have been a spitting image of her mother, blonde, pretty, and athletic. And from a young age, Sally had become the best of friends with another girl her age, and Sally and her best friend did everything together, from activities at school to family holidays. Their bond was unbreakable. Sally, though, wasn't thought to have been the most academically gifted students, and that was of great concern to her parents, who wanted her to go on to grammar school. Regardless, Sally was the kind of person to put in the hard work, and it paid off, so much so that she actually embarrassed her teachers who had put her down as achieving average or below part grades in her exams. Sally ended up achieving two A's and a B in her A-levels, which saw her qualify for Oxbridge. Though Sally didn't have her sights set on Oxford or Cambridge, and decided that she wanted to pursue a career in industrial geography, settling on the University of Southampton. At university, Sally embraced the student lifestyle and made friends everywhere she went. She dated a few men while she was at university, with one of those men actually being given a seal of approval by her parents. Everything appeared to be going amazingly for Sally. That was until her world would be shattered by the discovery of a lump in her mother's breast. Sally's mother, Jean, was diagnosed with breast cancer. But thankfully, after a successful operation and with regular checkups, Jean recovered from her disease. Despite this, Sally would go on to graduate with a 2-1 in industrial geography, though Sally had wanted a first. She went on to get a job in corporate finance at Lloyds Bank in London, before going on to work with other banks. And things were going really well. Her career was taking off. Her mother's cancer was in remission. She lived in Tooting, London with her friends. She was living the dream. In spring of 1988, Sally was asked by her boss to take an important document to their solicitors, which is what we call lawyers here in the UK. And when she did, she met a junior solicitor called Steve Clark. And when Sally first set eyes on him, she fell in love. Steve, upon seeing Sally, felt the same way. Eventually, the two of them began dating. Quote, Why do I love him so much? Because he's my best friend, my innermost mate. I trust him with my soul. I hate the words dependable, but he is that rare being, 
somebody who, if he says he will do something, does it, no matter what gets in the way. He's not dynamic, but once set, nothing will divert him. Sally introduced Steve to her parents, who were thrilled. But just as things were going well, Sally's mother, Jean's breast cancer came back. And in February of 1989, Jean told Sally, who was by her bedside in the Salisbury Infirmary, that Steve was the man for her before closing her eyes and passing away. Steve ends up proposing to Sally on holiday in Italy and Sally accepted the proposal with pure joy. And on the 21st of July, 1990, a Saturday, the town center of Salisbury came to a stop. The chief of police's daughter was getting married. The ceremony and celebrations went off without a hitch. Sally saying it to be the happiest day of her life, though tinged with sadness as she wished her mother could have been there. Sally would ultimately then go on to study law at the City of London University and would land a job as a solicitor after years of hard work and graft. In 1993, the couple decided they wanted a change. They both transferred jobs and purchased Hope Cottage in Wilmslow, Cheshire. It was a dream come true for Sally, though people kept inquiring as to when they were planning on having children. Quote, I want to live a little first, and Steve wants to be sure we have the financial resources to bring up children properly, and my career would be better founded if I spent a couple more years in corporate finance law. But I am conscious of my biological clock, and now seems to be a good time to give a baby its best chance. I am not desperately maternal, but if I were unable to have babies, my life would be incomplete. We are apprehensive because several friends have had difficulty conceiving. It was during the first week in the new year of 1996, while on holiday in the Canary Islands, that Sally realized she was pregnant. And she knew then that it was a sign that she was to be a parent. The couple settles on the name Christopher Joshua Clark. Christopher was born at 2 a.m. on Sunday the 22nd of September 1996, weighing 61 pounds and four ounces. He was two weeks overdue and the labor was quick. When Sally looked at her son for the first time through her sobs of joy and exhaustion, she described him as having perfect features. She could find no other words to describe him besides he was beautiful. On Wednesday the 25th of September 1996, Sally and Steve brought Christopher home for the first time. They drove slowly and carefully. They had something precious aboard. Christopher had lost weight after being born, but he slowly began to put it back on again. And after a week of being at home, the health visitor signed them off. Quote, he is a perfect baby, sleeping well, rarely crying. He demands his feeds with clockwork regularity every four hours. The only times he cries is for a change of nappy or a feed. I do everything for him during the day, but bath time is all Steve's. He sings to Christopher who pulls faces I spent hours in a special rocking chair feeding Christopher. It is then that I realized what bonding means. Suddenly, there is something more important than anything else. A little person totally dependent on me and part of me. I love Steve with all of my heart, but Christopher is an extension of myself. In the first week of December, Sally and Steve took the train to London with Christopher as Steve had a business trip and Sally wanted for her friends who still lived in London to meet her baby. The young family stayed at a hotel and one of Sally's friends dropped by and took Sally out shopping, leaving Steve to look after Christopher as he caught up on paperwork. It was as Steve was doing this paperwork that he noticed something wasn't right with Christopher. A trickle of blood was dripping from both his nostrils and it seemed like Christopher was having difficulty breathing. Steve panicked and rang for a doctor. 
After the first aid staff arrived, the bleeding stopped and it appeared that Christopher had recovered. Steve was given the number for the hotel's doctor and he called up the hotel doctor and explained what had happened. The hotel's doctor told Steve that he wasn't concerned, but if Steve was worried, then he can take Christopher for surgery, but there was no real need or reason to do so. When Sally arrived at the hotel and Steve explained what had happened, Sally was concerned, but she remembered that she frequently suffered from nosebleeds, and if the doctor isn't concerned, then there's no real need for any further medical attention. The couple decided to just watch Christopher much more carefully. Little did the couple know, one of the worst days in their lives was looming on the horizon. Friday the 13th of December, 1996. Steve had complained that morning about an office party that he had been invited to after work, but Sally had encouraged him to go and socialize. You see, Sally had her own office party the following week and thought it'd be a great opportunity for them to let their hair down. She kissed Steve goodbye as he left for work and went about that day's typical errands and chores. That evening, Sally decided to take a bath and so brought Christopher into the bathroom so she could watch him while she bathed. Sally then placed Christopher in a Moses basket on the floor in front of her wardrobe on the other side of her bed and then she climbed into bed and turned on the television. After a while, Sally decided to go downstairs to make a cup of tea, leaving Christopher up in the bedroom asleep in the Moses basket. As Sally waited for the kettle to boil, she finished the washing up and poured herself a nice cup of tea. It was a process that took about five minutes and she went straight back up to the bedroom with her cup of tea in hand. Immediately upon entering the bedroom, Sally knew something was wrong with Christopher. He had gone gray in the face and wasn't breathing. Extreme panic began to set in and Sally called 999, the emergency phone number in the UK at 9.35 p.m. Her panic states made it impossible for her to start any form of first aid overcome with the horror that lay before her. Sally ran downstairs with Christopher in her arms. The ambulance arrived quickly, but they couldn't get into the house as the back door was locked and Sally couldn't find her keys anywhere. Quote, I can't open the back door, forgetting that I had locked it before going to bed. I remember that the spare keys are with our neighbors. The front door is never used because it is too difficult to open. I run upstairs hunting for the keys, but still cannot find them. The ambulance men are trying to get in. I shout that Christopher has died, yelling at them to get the keys from the neighbors. Paramedics try to resuscitate Christopher on the kitchen table, but fail. Sally rode in the ambulance with Christopher, screaming and begging the paramedics to save her baby, asking repeatedly, is he dead? When the ambulance arrived at the hospital, Christopher was rushed into a room full of doctors trying to revive him. Sally was taken into a side room as the doctors worked on Christopher. Nurses and doctors stayed with her so she wasn't alone and all throughout, Sally was distraught and sobbing continuously, as anyone would. The doctors and nurses tried to get the contact information for Steve from Sally, but Sally couldn't recall where Steve had gone for the office party. It wasn't until 10 p.m. that the nurses finally managed to get a hold of Steve, who was at a Spanish restaurant. The nurse tells Steve, quote, Please can you come to us immediately, your wife needs you. It made no sense to Steve. What's the matter, he demands. Your wife needs you, is all she will say. Is Christopher all right? Just get here as quick as you can. When Steve arrived at the hospital, a doctor took him aside and broke the bad news. 
Christopher was declared dead at 10.40 p.m. A post-mortem was conducted to determine a cause of death, and it was revealed that Christopher had inter-alia bruises, abraded bruises on the body, and a small split and a slight bruise in the frenulum, likely as a result of the resuscitation attempts. Hello there, I'm Dr. Shaham Das, consultant forensic psychiatrist and host of the YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. It was determined that the cause of the death was due to a lower respiratory tract infection and put down as a case of SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. According to the NHF website, in the UK, more than 200 babies die suddenly and unexpectedly every year due to SIDS. Nowadays, SIDS is rare and the exact cause is unknown. Most deaths from SIDS occur during the baby's first six months of life, and it's slightly more common in boys than it is in girls. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, which is also known as cot death or crib death, is the sudden and unexplainable death of an infant during their first year of life. Because of the seemingly random nature of this condition, there are a number of risk factors that seem to correlate with getting SIDS, but there's no clear mechanism or cause that's been identified. SIDS is considered a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning all other causes have to be ruled out before an infant death is given that label. The most well-known risk factors have to do with how an infant sleeps. To lower the risk of SIDS, the recommendation is to make sure that babies sleep alone in a crib, on their backs, and without blankets. The risk of SIDS is higher among boys rather than girls, as well as infants between 2 and 4 months old, and among formula-fed babies, and those born prematurely or with low birth weight. Risk factors that relate to a mother include receiving little or no prenatal care, being a teenage mother, and smoking during the pregnancy. Alcohol consumption is also thought to be a risk factor, because there are more cases of SIDS during weekends, the new year, and other times of the year when drinking is included in celebrations. Christopher was subsequently cremated. A funeral took place on the 22nd of December 1996. Sally was understandably deeply affected by Christopher's death and would never be quite the same again. In May of 1997, the following year, Sally began to notice that she was displaying signs of pregnancy and so decided to purchase a pregnancy test. And the test came back positive. Sally was over the moon, but the fear of SIDS weighed heavily on her. On Saturday the 29th of November 1997, Sally and Steve drove over to the hospital where they were expecting for it to be a regular checkup. However, when they were examined, the doctors informed Sally that she was actually in the very early stages of labour. So later that day, the couple welcomed their second son into the world, Richard, Harry Richard Clark. When they brought Harry home for the first time, they did everything that they were advised to do to avoid the SIDS uh, recurring again. They watched Harry like an eagle. They never let him out of their sight. Harry had been born only two weeks prematurely and had been below the average weight at birth. So the healthcare professionals further kept like a closer eye and a watch on the baby. Sally was given an apnea alarm and he placed this on Harry so that it would sound off if he stopped breathing. A routine appointment revealed that Harry had a benign heart murmur. So that's something that shouldn't have actually caused him any issues. Sadly, Sally's fears would come true on the 26th of January, 1998. That day, Harry's apnea alarm was replaced by a new one by a healthcare worker before Sally took Harry to the health centre to have his jabs. Sally and Harry left the healthcare centre at around 5.10pm and they headed home. Steve arrived home later from work just after 8pm that same day. Sally was in bed with Harry when Steve got back from work. 
She's trying to breastfeed Harry, and despite him sucking, she couldn't really determine whether he was actually drawing any milk. So after a while, Harry stops feeding, so Sally hands him to Steve to hold, and Harry throws up a little milk on Steve's shoulder. And then Steve puts his son on his knee and begins, like, begins pulling funny faces, but Harry does not react. So he places Harry in the bouncy chair beside the bed where Sally is still lying and decides to go downstairs to watch some television. However, just moments later, Sally glanced down at Harry and saw that her darkest fears had come true. Only minutes have passed since Steve left the room. Something is wrong. Harry's too pale and one hand is scrunched up towards his left shoulder. I yell for Steve. Harry often sleeps with his head to one side, but this time it was much further forward. I get out of bed and I lift him. His body is limp. I scream for Steve to do something. So Steve ran upstairs and began resuscitation on Harry as Sally phoned 999 at 9.27pm. I run downstairs, phone 999. The emergency operator demands to talk to Steve. I shout to him to pick up the phone. In my panic, I put down the receiver, cutting off the call. The operator phones back immediately and coaches Steve through the resuscitation technique. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at the ambulance arrived quickly and took over CPR from Steve before moving Harry to the ambulance and then rushing him to hospital. Tragically, Harry was pronounced dead at 10.41pm. An autopsy was conducted once again, trying to determine the cause of death. Had SIDS struck the family again? The medical examiner, though, found something far darker. It was discovered that there were indications of a non-accidental injury consistent with shaking on several occasions over several days, and it was considered that shaking was the likely cause of death. As a result of this finding, further tests were carried out in relation to Christopher, whose body had been extensively photographed during his autopsy, and it was concluded that Christopher's death had also been unnatural, and that the evidence was suggestive of smothering. Subsequently, on the 23rd of February 1998, Sally and Steve were arrested on the suspicion of Harry's murder. Throughout extensive interviews, Sally categorically denied shaking or harming Harry in any way. On the 9th of April 1998, Sally was questioned in connection to Christopher's death and subsequently arrested on suspicion of Christopher's murder. Sally had been advised by her solicitors to not answer the police's questions, which was advice that she took. The trial against Sally was based upon the prosecution's belief that she had murdered Christopher by smothering him to death. It was also initially theorised that Sally had murdered Harry by shaking, 
though this theory actually changed shortly before the trial commenced, to Harry's death being attributed to a violent trauma to the spine followed by suffocation. The prosecution alleged that neither of the deaths could have been due to SIDS due to the fact that both babies had sustained recent and old injuries which had no explanation. The further similarities between the two deaths added to the prosecution's case. Both babies were about the same age when they died. They were both found by Sally unconscious in the same room in the house. They were both found at about the same time in the evening, shortly after they had been fed. Sally had been alone with each child where they were discovered to have been lifeless. In both instances, Steve had either been away from the home or away from the scene. And finally, the fact that they had both sustained unexplained injuries. These injuries consisted of a bleeding in the lungs found in Christopher's case. The nosebleed that Christopher had while at the hotel in London was alleged by the prosecution to have been caused by an attempted smothering, something which had been consistent with a different case that one of the defence experts had worked on in which a baby was smothered. The prosecution further claims that a nosebleed in a baby as young as Christopher would have been extremely rare and for so much blood to have ended up in his lungs, it would have required immediate hospital treatments. But as we know, Christopher recovered fairly quickly with no obvious issues. It was also stated that bleeding in the lungs is a marker for asphyxia. Christopher also had a torn frenulum, which the prosecution claimed to have been a diagnostic of a deliberately inflicted injury and was unlikely to have been the result of resuscitation efforts. The prosecution claims that the torn frenulum was indicative of abuse that Christopher had sustained prior to death and is an injury consistent with that of a smothering. The medical examiner who'd carried out the autopsy on Christopher had noted bruises on Christopher's body, which the prosecution further used to support their case. For the murder of Harry, the prosecution relied on several pieces of information that they believed showed that Harry had been the subject of shaking or violent abuse and smothering. Harry had sustained hypoxic damage to the brain, which was claimed to have been caused a matter of hours before his death and was consistent with smothering or other violent trauma. Small brain hemorrhages were also discovered, which the prosecution used to support their case. Petechial hemorrhages on Harry's eyelids were determined to have been unusual in a SIDS case and noted to have been a worrying discovery. Hemorrhages on the back of Harry's eyes were found to have been consistent with asphyxia. An odd fracture on Harry's second rib was determined to have not been a cause of death, but would be highly significant in the prosecution's case if it had been deliberate. Harry's first rib was dislocated, which the prosecution claims unlikely to have been sustained via the resuscitation efforts and more likely to have been due to abuse. And finally, Harry had sustained spinal bleeding and a swollen cord that the prosecution claimed had to have been sustained via some form of trauma. The prosecution, alongside all of this, relied heavily on the testimony of an expert witness, Professor Meadow. Professor Meadow provided statistics in the case surrounding SIDS, primarily stating that the probability of two SIDS deaths in one family matching the profile of Sally was one in 73 million. The defence team was adamant that Sally had not done anything untoward towards her children and that she hadn't killed them. They accepted that there were some worrying and unusual features found in the autopsies, but they believed that the evidence was no more than suspicion, nothing concrete. The bruising and torn frenulum that was observed in Christopher's autopsy had initially been put down to the resuscitation attempts, and such injuries are consistent with attempts to revive a person, especially a baby. 
And the fact that the medical examiner changed their stance later on was heavily scrutinized by the defense team. The medical examiner's interpretation of the bruises that they found on Christopher that weren't actually noted at the hospital when he was brought in and were not examined closely, and so this was in fact alleged to be unreliable by the defense, was also something that was attacked by the defense team. Sure, the injured frenulum was suspicious, the defense argued it was likely caused during the insertion of a laryngoscopy. The evidence that the prosecution had gathered to support their theory that Harry had been shaken to death was argued to be weak and no other typical injuries of a death due to shaking had been found. No tears to the brain, no intraretinal hemorrhages, no subdural hemorrhages in the spine and no paraspinal injuries. No classic features of shaking existed. The hypoxic damage to Harry's brain was debated between expert witnesses in this case and so it too was deemed as unreliable. They couldn't agree whether it was actually hypoxic damage or not. The 17 day long trial began on the 11th of October 1999, with a verdict being reached on the 9th of November 1999. A 10 to 2 majority verdict found that Sally Clark, on the basis of the statistical improbability that two SIDS deaths occurred in the family in such a short period of time, as testified by Professor Meadow, that Sally Clark was guilty. Sally was sentenced to life imprisonment. But that's not where this case ends at all. I only wanted to briefly touch on the statistic provided by Professor Meadow and the controversy surrounding it, as this case is actually a two-parter, as I mentioned at the beginning. The second part to this case can be found over on Dr. Sohon Das's YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. In part two, we go over the appeal and we scrutinize the statistics and the conviction using Dr. Sohon Das's expert opinion, as he's a consultant forensic psychiatrist who's testified in many trials here in the UK. You can find a link to part two in the top corner of your screen in the description box and in the pinned comments down below. And that's everything that I have for you in part one of this case. I'll see you in part two. Thank you again to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. You can get your one month free trial by using the link in the description or the link in the pinned comments. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video, just like this one. And if you have a case that you want me to cover on this channel, then head on over to requestacase.com and send in your case submissions there. And all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice, and support.
Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.